So I'm Katherine Lambrecht. You haven't seen me in a while, sorry about that. Uh, I'm with Chicago Foodways Roundtable, Culinary Historians of Chicago, and Greater Midwest Foodways. Or as Cynthia sometimes commented, if there's food in Chicago, I somehow managed to show up. But it's not true, I, well, I get around. Okay, so today's program is another one that took a few years. Alice here, Weintraub, Weintraub, was here about four years ago, three years ago, talking about, and at that time you were working on this book, talking about German food in, I think, mostly like the East Germany. Meanwhile, our other speaker, who will be next, she showed up on the scene. We bumped into her, I think Scott bumped into you initially over at Dunk House. And then you started coming to some of our meetings. She was working on her master's degree on anthropology and told me that she was going to evaluate what Chicagoans think of German food, roughly like that. I mean, I'm sure it's more sophisticated than the way I just put it, but this is also a work in progress, this talk. So we'll start with Alice and then transition on to Nadia. Here we go, Alice. Sorry. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much for coming. Thank you to Kathy for organizing this panel and Nadia to um, being, agreeing to be with me on this panel. Um, it's really fun for me to come. As you mentioned, I came several years ago when this uh, book was still in progress and it actually just came out um, two months ago. So this is my first kind of official public discussion of my published work. Um, so uh, I wanted to say at the beginning, I have a talk prepared, um, but you are more than welcome. And in fact, I would love it if you wanted to interrupt me at any point with questions. Um, I'm happy to cover as much or as little of my content as I can if there's anything you don't understand. Now the good stuff starts, so now I'll talk slowly. <laughs> okay, so as I mentioned, um, my talk today comes from my book titled Modern Hungers, Food and Power in 20th Century Germany, which just came out in July. Show you the 3D version right here. Um, Modern Hungers tells the story of Germany's experiences during the two world wars and the Cold War through the history of the country's food economy. My book approaches the food system, which I loosely define as the intertwined processes of food production, consumption, and distribution, um, through the lens of biopolitics. This is a term some people might be familiar with. Um, biopolitics is a term coined by the French philosopher Foucault to describe particularly modern strategies that nation states have developed to monitor and control their populations. So there's many ways in which populations are monitored nowadays. Most of them are digital. But what I'm interested in is thinking about how the food system itself is a way of controlling um, and attempting to control and regulate and process populations. Um, one of the key insights of this approach of biopolitics in my own work is that it understands food and hunger as linked and inseparable categories. And this is a really central point for my own research um, because popular discourse and many academic scholars as well tend to place these categories in opposition to one another. That is to say, some people look at food, other people look at hunger. And what I'm very interested in doing is saying those two things are always intertwined and we can't understand one without the other. For this, my book argues that hunger is not a biologically stable fact, it's not uh, something that is definable, but in fact a political and cultural category that is constantly shifting, but is always present. Th throughout this book and throughout this talk, I'm talking about food, but I, I'm always also talking about hunger. And I, I, 
I wanted to say that at the beginning so that you can also, on your own as you're listening, think about where hunger fits into this narrative, um, and it always is present, although not always explicit. For this presentation, I'll be focusing on the question of German identity in relationship to food, looking at two case studies, rye bread in Nazi Germany and bananas in divided Cold War Germany, so East and West Germany. Um, and my goal is to unpack the centrality of food to individual and collective identity formation and its relationship to state power. So that's kind of what I'm interested in. Food's importance in modern identity formation, which I think Nadia will be talking about in different ways um, later today, means that processes of social exclusion and inclusion hinge around access to food. Um, and food itself, therefore, implies decisions about who is allowed to eat what and who is prohibited from eating what. In other words, food is a key method of exclusion and while it signals inclusion. And this is something that often has really profound and potentially deadly consequences, as we all know from history. And I'm going to start with a case that's very familiar to probably all of us, um, which is Nazi Germany and the importance of food for Nazi ideology and policy. And I just wanted to begin because I prepared to start to think about this talk you know, quite a few months ago, but in the past few weeks, um, activities in the US have made my research um, in a really upsetting way much more relevant to the contemporary moment than I would like. Um, so I'm, I, my, my talk is framed around the idea of blood and soil, which was, of course, the central uh, tenet of Nazi ideology, Nazi racial ideology, as well as Nazi military strategy. And blood and soil is, of course, an agricultural uh, concept, a food-based concept. Um, and I actually wanted to show this is, of course, an image. I'm sure you probably all recognize it um, from a neo-Nazi protest in, um, in, in Virginia, um, where the blood and soil was being chanted. Um, Recently, and this is on the right, is an image of a swastika in a, a, a cornfield um, at a farm. And so I just wanted to kind of remind us that what's going on here is not uh, sort of revisiting German ideas, but in fact an idea that came up in Germany but is still very alive today, which is the profound racial implications of food discourse, right? Okay, so what is blood and soil? What does it have to do with food? Um, why does it matter? So, for example, in all discussions about neo-Nazism, nobody's been talking about food. I'm not saying they should have, but in fact, it's important, I think, that blood and soil was the language that was used by contemporary uh, radical right-wing activists. So what does blood and soil mean? Well, blood and soil means, I guess, as, it's, as it says, it means there's an explicit connection between actual bodies and land, right? So soil and bodies are linked um, through the lens of race, right? That's what blood and soil means. The original idea behind blood and soil is that German soil, so soil that's defined as German, is only appropriate for certain kinds of raced bodies. That is to say, certain kinds of bodies belong on certain soil and not others, right? So there's lots of implications of this, as you can imagine. Um, this is a pseudo-biological concept. That is to say, the concept is uh, justified with reference to biology, but there is, of course, no actual scientific basis for this claim. Um, but the idea usually is that in order to have healthy bodies, you need certain kinds of foods, and those foods can only be adequately produced if certain kinds of people produce them, right, on certain kinds of soil. So what I want to do in the first part of this talk is discuss the ways in which food became, I argue, the fundamental expression of race in Nazi Germany, something that makes the uh, contemporary resurrection of this phrase particularly terrifying to a historian. When race and food supply are explicitly linked, as in this slogan, or um, to be more uh, contemporary in discussions about uh, the role of immigrants in food supply in the US. I'm a Californian, so it's ex extraordinarily uh, prevalent, the, race, the racing of our US food system, for example. The results are terrifying as race becomes a matter, a matter of uh, food supply. Right. So 
To put it simply, a slogan like Blood and Soil means that food links individual racial identity to physical space. This interdependence of food, land, and race determined the brutality of the Second World War. Food was at the heart of Nazi war plans, and it shaped the war's devastating trajectory. By linking Aryan blood with a natural claim to specific parts of land in Central and Eastern Europe, um, especially parts of the Soviet Union, Poland, Czechoslovakia, racial and cultural survival became synonymous with having, quote, enough to eat. In other words, food supply is what you need in order to ensure racial survival. Racial survival was, according to the Nazis, only possible if, if Germans had access to, exclusive access to, the soil of especially Ukraine. After all, it is the drive for grain in the East that allowed the Nazi party to describe the invasion of Poland and the USSR as necessary for collective survival and as ultimately a defensive rather than offensive war. In other words, these invasions were about protecting, uh, maintaining our survival rather than about uh, infringing upon other people's survival. So, I'm now going to um, try to be a little more specific. So grain, why does grain matter? First of all, the grain that is at stake is always and exclusively rye, right? Why is it rye? Because rye is the grain that actually grows indigenous to Central Europe. Um, and Germans have traditionally consumed a fair amount of rye. Wheat has traditionally been imported, and the only possibility that Germans had to be self-sustaining in grain production was by uh, exclusively focusing on rye. So, all rhetoric about grain in Nazi Germany is focused on rye, just a shorthand. Grain, therefore, or rye, becomes a shorthand for land. Again, a very important, um, very important whenever we're thinking about food, for example, is to think about how land is or is not present in that. In order to have food, we always have to have land. Right? Um, and usually you talk about one but not the other. So in Nazi Germany, they choose. Sometimes it's about grain as if the land wasn't important. Other times it's about the land and they don't mention the grain. But they're always part of the same package. Right? Grain symbolizes and was produced by fertile soil, which in turn created the Aryan race. As a result, the cultivation of the soil becomes itself an act of war. And this is a, a 1934 poster, so this is many years before the actual initiation of the war. Um, uh, agricultural poster uh, depicting uh, blood and soil, as it says here, I translated the slogan, as the basis for the German race, a German future. Um, and this is, of course, a plow that is supposed to represent a, a, a weapon moving forward. So the, uh, trans the transforming of agri agricultural productivity or farm labor into military action. Right. Um, invoking this merger of bloodshed and grain production, Joseph Goebbels, who's the Minister of Propaganda, you probably, many of you have heard of him, paradigmatically explained the 1941 invasion of the Soviet Union as, quote, being the drive for grain and bread for an overflowing breakfast, lunch, and dinner table. We finally want to be able to claim what is ours. And what is ours there is, of course, the soil of East Central Soviet Union. In the imagined riches of the traditional German diet, the single most racially charged food was bread, of course, and specifically Vollkorn, Brot, which means literally whole grain bread, but in the German context always means rye bread, whole grain rye bread, rather than wheat. So wheat bread is usually white bread, and rye bread is called whole grain bread. Germany's preference for dark rye bread had been accepted as nationally defining since the 19th century, although in fact it was not nationally defining, it was very, very variable um, in terms of, it was very regional. Germany, as a historical, quote, rye land, was contrasted, and this again is a long tradition, with effeminate, wasteful, and weak white bread lands, especially France and Great Britain. 
um, who consumed white wheat-based breads, which had to be artificially vitaminized and were so soft because they had bad teeth. And there's a lot of kind of racialization of why rye bread is inherently superior and healthier than wheat bread. Um, and of course, this discourse is happening at the same time that within Germany, wheat bread is displacing rye bread. So at a popular level, people are moving away from rye and towards wheat, and the medical profession is pushing against this by saying, in fact, it's less healthy. Some German nutritionists assert, oh, yeah. oh, no. Some German nutritionists that looks good. asserted that dark breads, pumpernickels, and ryes, and the use of barley and seeds rather than gen generic wheat, wheat berries nourished German uniqueness and intellectual and physical strength. So it, it becomes, although it's not always, racially specific. So this is a, another Nazi poster. Um, this is, this is, again, there's a, a tremendous number of these posters produced um, in the Third Reich um, saying, eat, pretty straightforward slogan, eat whole grain bread, again, meaning rye bread. It is better and healthier. Um, but of course, what's being expressed in this is that uh, German, quote unquote, Aryan families are nourished and particular, eating this kind of bread is a particularly German act, a German racial act, um, being linked with raising the next generation of Aryans, only Aryans together producing it, and of course, linked to good mothering as a racial act. Whole grain bread, according to this rhetoric, uses the entire grain, something that during the Third Reich implied a sort of mythic connection to naturalness and purity. Vollkornbrot was an ideal metaphor, it seemed, for a healthy, independent, and uncontaminated, racially pure folk that was strong in its isolation from the world. Quote, in the battle for bread freedom, which is what people, what the Nazis called the ideal shift to an entirely rye economy. So that was bread freedom. We don't need to be dependent on wheat imports. We've achieved bread freedom. In the battle for bread freedom, the entire German folk has unified itself insofar as it follows the Führer, Hitler. The new ethos of bread finds its most beautiful expression in these words, we are the grain, which is of course the rye grain. In contrast, inferior races were associated with inferior bread. According to a 1939 treatise on the global Jewish monopoly on wheat, so wheat is linked with Jews, the core difference of the Jewish race reveals itself nowhere more clearly than in the issue of bread. Ominously, in 1936, Goring, who again you might have heard of, particularly notorious uh, military leader of the Third Reich and close confidant of Hitler, warned that, quote, whoever misuses the holiest product of a nation, the bread grain of the German people, is a traitor and must be destroyed. And of course, um, Misusing here is a synonym for eating. That is to say, anybody who eats the rye who is not an Aryan should be destroyed. This threat explicitly targeted Jews. Jews were prohibited from uh, farming, from tilling the soil, and from initially from eating any rye bread. While a true Aryan man, woman, or child, quote, senses the Godhead and the deepest sense of existence when he sees rye, for the Jew, grain and bread are not something holy. The Jew sees in grain only an outstanding opportunity for making profit for speculation and exploitation. The Nazi veneration of whole grain rye bread was thus not simply a matter of taste or custom, although people pretended like it was. It was the food that simultaneously epitomized the state's racial fantasies and military ambitions, both the exclusion of Jews internally and the expansion and seizure of soil to the east. Grain cultivation was the ideal and, according to the Nazis, only appropriate use of land and the primary potential of the soil of the Soviet Union, which they are ultimately planning on annexing. 
Since its founding in the early 1920s, the Nazi Party had promoted a program of agricultural reform that demanded the acquisition of massive amounts of new farmland. And again, we should remember that was always the explicit and uh, claim for why the entire war was happening, was that Germany needed more soil to produce grain for the population to survive. German soil at the same time said it was gaining more German soil, and it said simultaneously, not only do we need more German soil, but this soil can only be owned and tilled by German people. So it doesn't just matter who owns it, it actually can only be processed by Germans. That's the only way to make grain adequately. Unsurprisingly, German farmers made up some of the Nazi party's most passionate supporters. This rhetoric of blood and soil seemed a way out of social and economic crisis and a restoration of a perceived loss of prestige in uh, Germany. In fact, in the initial 1933 elections that gave uh, Hitler, uh, that brought Hitler to power, peasant communities in northern and eastern Germany had been the only segments of the population to give Hitler an absolute majority. So again, in that initial uh, drive to power, that was the strongest base of support for Hitler consistently in Germany. So I just wanted to, there's again a billion such images, I just grabbed a couple, um, and these are images, they're usually titled Blood and Soil, so uh, kind of uh, a way of, for people to visualize what Blood and Soil as a, a military slogan means, um, and the patterns are always the same, that is to say it's a fertile reproductive Aryan family that is embedded in a agricultural scene, um, and uh, most often in a, a scene of production of grain, so you'll see uh, this one on the... This one here, of course, they're actually in a field of grain, um, and here they're surrounded by fruits and vegetables. Um, and it, of course, the key component of this is that it's implicitly and explicitly saying that farmers, because they produce grain, are in fact the racial heart of the population. The Nazi linking of race with land meant that the racial struggle between Aryan, the Aryan and his enemies was cast in terms of land and agriculture. Soldiering and farming were both projects to protect and invigorate blood and soil. And this link between farming and war is extremely important. Several years before the outbreak of war, a 1935 analysis of the German man in agriculture asserted that, quote, the desire for a return to simplicity, to the rye diet as a model, grown on the simple German soil, was a race war that is not fought by men with their weapons. It is a fight where the strength of the family and the race is brought to the fields. So this, again, just uh, another kind of image to give you a sense of what we're talking about. Um, one of the key things about the engagement of food in race politics is that it becomes inherently domestic. That is to say, the, the uh, internal actions of the home and the family become a matter of military action and racial survival. So that's very clear in this image. Um, the poster says, this is what we are fighting for, for the bread of our children. And of course, the, the image, of course, doesn't just show children, but shows children pretending to be mothers, right? So you have multiple generations um, uh, being represented as being the thing that we are fighting for, and what is the fight we are doing? We are raising grain to produce bread um, and to ensure that our racial survival through generations. Uh, or to flip that around, by engaging with food, the home front becomes the war front. And that was an explicit uh, slogan that was used very frequently. Grain cultivation became a central justification, um, as I've said, for expansion and invasion, and thus for the war. Within Germany, what was called the, quote, battle for rye, the battle for the rye, melded domestic agricultural policy with brutal military policy. 
by linking a push for increasing domestic grain production, so rye, with preparation for the seizure of croplands in Eastern Europe. So one of the things that's, um, the food economy in Germany was always dependent upon the seizure of food supply from outside of Germany, which of course contradicts the racial ideology that says only Germans can produce food for Germans. In fact, the vast majority of food that Germans consumed during the Third Reich was actually produced by non-Germans. And of course, um, consuming bread or eating it, and I think you guys all have some rye bread so you can chew along as I'm talking, consuming bread or eating it is as important as producing it. For most Germans, and this again is important, most Germans were not farmers uh, during the Third Reich, and whole grain bread was in fact not acquired by actually tilling soil, but by going to stores. Right? And all food purchases in Nazi Germany were shaped by the country's rationing program as well. So I've been talking a lot about farming, but this is a rhetoric that moves far beyond the actual farmers. So I want to very just quickly talk about this. I talked about that length in my, um, in my book, but just very briefly to mention here, what about people who are purchasing food and how are they engaged with this racial ideology? And in fact, one of my main arguments is that the rationing program um, was one of the most significant ways in which race shaped Aryan and non-Aryan lives, especially women and children on the home front. So it's much more easy for us to imagine how the soldiers who are fighting on the front are engaging with racial discourse, but what does it matter to the women and children at home who are only cooking and eating um, the way they always did. But one of my arguments is that because they are cooking and eating within this racialized rationing program, those actions themselves also become um, central to the racial ideology. So when rationing was first initiated in 1939, Vollkornbrot, the sacred food um, of Nazi Germany, was officially restricted only to members of the Aryan racial community. And I just wanted to show a couple images um, here on the, um, this one right here is a, is a, a, a Vollkornbrot, a whole grain bread rationing card for an Aryan young person um, from Munich in 1941, just to give you a sense of what they looked like, and there's a certain amount of Vollkornbrot allotted um, for everybody. Um, who's not Jewish or, or gypsy or any other uh, inferior member of society. Um, Non-Aryans had consistently restricted access to food products, so not only could they not uh, acquire rye bread, but they also were, re received ever fewer products of the quote-unquote German soil. So, for example, in 1940, the Nutritional Office announced that consumers whose ration card is marked with a J, and you actually can't um, see it that well, but that... Um, yeah. I am pointing it... Uh, oh, you can't see this? I see, I'm sorry. The one on the left. I'm sorry, I thought you could see it, but sorry, sorry. So here, so this is the whole form red one, right? Um, this, this word is Yuda, that means Jew. So uh, rationing cards that were uh, allowed to Jewish people were marked Yuda, 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 or sometimes it would just be a J depending on the, ration, the, the region of Germany. So any rationing card that had this J or Yuda was not, uh, was the, the people with these cards were not allowed to receive apples or pears, even if they had a rationing card for them. Yes, it's actually very, so almost none. So there's almost, so this that unbelievably good stuff. So I, these are what's randomly available in the Jewish Museum because they all were destroyed very early on. So there was one guy who was actually, a, he's in a, he's in a forced labor, he's a very highly educated guy, so this is extraordinarily weird. And essentially what's an important thing about my analysis is I kind of go through this whole elaborate regulation of what Jews can and can't eat. And of course, there's almost none of them left. So what's interesting is they have, they issue all these smart values, and it's not even relevant. Right, so that's itself. Yeah, absolutely. This is like, oh, like three people who got these cards in reality, maybe, you know. Um, but the card, there were unicards since 1939. So initially, there was a larger population of people who were receiving these cards. Um, they could not receive apples or pears. A few months later, Jews naturally received no oranges or mandarins. There was a huge... Oh, sorry. No, I'm sorry. Um, no oranges or mandarins. Um, in 1942, and again, you know, uh, about 95% of Germany's 
Jewish population is either dead, emigrated, or in hiding. So this, again, is speaking to an extraordinary small number of people. In the late fall of 1942, national law prohibits Jews from ever consuming the following foods, meat, eggs, wheat flour, full-fat milk, or reduced-fat fresh milk. So, um, you know, um, and access to turnips and cheap varieties of cabbage, which were the only vegetables they were allowed to consume, was left to the discretion of the local nutritional offices. So they could choose whether or not to issue Jews turnips and cheap cabbages. So what's in addition to everything else, what's interesting about this change, of course, is that the higher, in, the higher cost of wheat has actually meant that Jews no longer can eat the, quote, inferior bread, right? So uh, theoretically, Jews should not be allowed to eat rye because it's the pure, holy grain. But ultimately, that's the only kind of bread that they can eat because uh, wheat is too expensive. They're not allowed to eat wheat. So one of these unusual shifts that happen is that um, the people on the lowest uh, rung of the racial uh, pyramid in Nazi Germany end up consuming almost exclusively rye when they get grain at all because they're not allowed to consume any wheat because it was imported and therefore expensive. Uh, yeah. And, and I have the quote from the, the moment that it says, bread, guards given to, bread cards given to Jews can only be used to receive rye flour products, despite the initial uh, ruling that it was illegal. And so-called Slavs, which is the German racial category usually used to describe Soviets, although occasionally other Eastern Europeans as well, were especially, I mean, were especially poorly treated within the Nazi food economy. I mean, just to be blunt, um, millions of them were starved to death. Uh, so it was saying bad off is sort of a misnomer here. Um, they were the only ethnic group other than Jews and European gypsies that were targeted for annihilation or complete elimination. And they were the only population that was specifically targeted for starvation. So essentially, Jews were supposed to be eliminated, but the majority of Jews were not starved to death. They were supposed to be killed in gas chambers, right, or in military action. But the Slavs were actually specifically targeted for starvation. The plan was to put essentially a massive fence around huge parts of the Soviet Union and just let everybody die. Right, so, and that itself has to do with ideologies of Eastern European soil and, 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 and uh, Soviet soil. Because they were the people who populated the fertile grain lands that the Nazis were obsessed with, they were especially threatening Slavs to German food and war fantasies. In the summer of 1942, uh, General Reinhardt, who was just a military uh, leader of the, of the German army, admired, quote, the resilience of his Russian slave laborers, and these are POWs, um, and again, as I mentioned briefly before, um, by 1942, two-thirds of Germany's domestic food supply was being produced by, non, by slave laborers. So more than half, even within Germany, more than half of Germany's food is actually being produced by slave laborers who are not Aryan. Um, so this is just a quote from him. Only one of my Russian slave laborers has died so far. The rest are continuing their work in the fields. Their provisions cost us nothing. And I want to remind us what that means. The only way that food costs nothing is if they are not given any food. Their provisions cost us nothing, and we don't have to suffer under the fact that these animals, whose children are killing our soldiers, are eating German bread. Yesterday, I was forced to kill two of these Russian beasts as they had secretly gobbled up the milk that had been reserved for the mother sow. Um, so this is just a letter from a, a, a excerpt from a letter home talking about the kind of uh, food economy of a German farm during this time. Um, and again, of course, the contrast between animal and human there is, is quite explicit. Within their concentration camps, German chefs developed a standardized recipe. Or I said chefs, that's actually wrong. It was a German nutritionist who developed a standardized distributed recipe for what was called Russenbrot, or Russian bread. So there was a, a, a nutritionist decided to develop, there was an appeal to develop a particular bread for uh, the population of uh, uh, slave laborers, Russian POWs, Soviet prisoners. Um, the recipe was initially set at 72% rye and 28% sugar beet peel, if available, um, with alternative uh, fillers, including leaves, grass, and straw. Um, and the rye uh, percentage was continually dropped so that uh, 
And this was a big struggle for bakers because, of course, the bread couldn't be baked if it was more than 40% grass or straw. Um, and you should all, of course, note that this means this bread was itself often deadly. So people often died, um, in theory, not of starvation, but because when they ate the food that was provided for them, their bodies couldn't process it and their, essentially their, their intestines exploded. Again, however, despite the point here is as well, despite Rye's symbolic centrality to Nazi ideology, its relative cheapness made it the grain of choice for prisoner populations. Um, and this was, and the Russenbrot is a particularly clear, the Russian bread is a particularly clear example of feeding to kill rather than feeding to keep alive. Again, kind of complicating the categories of hunger and uh, feeding that we have in our heads. So the Nazi party openly celebrated linking destroying racial enemies with Aryan nourishment. So not only does it celebrate this, but it says that they are um, interdependent. That is to say, we cannot have a well-fed Aryan population without destroying our racial enemies because our racial enemies are eating our food, right? Um, and I just wanted to show this image, um, uh, again, a very typical but powerful image that is explicitly uh, showing how the, the German body, the raced Aryan body, is actually itself made out of grains, right? This is actually, uh, the body is the rye that um, is coming out of the, the soil. Blood and, I guess this is an illustration really of, of blood and soil that is most explicit. In 1941, on the eve of the invasion of the Soviet Union, Hitler proclaimed in a sort of reassuring statement to his leaders that, quote, he had never heard of a German eating a loaf of bread and worrying whether the land that produced it had been conquered by the sword. We, after all, we eat Canadian wheat and don't think about the Indians. This haunting analogy, while it suggests, on the one hand, the ubiquity and invisibility of race in the modern food economy, at the same time denies, of course, the distinctiveness of the Nazi racial imagination. In the Third Reich, land and the food that it produced were inseparable from Nazi racial models and thus were directly implicated in projects of population displacement and mass murder, at the same time that they became central components of collective and individual German identity and in a way that ultimately becomes separate from or parallel to racial identity. So um, that uh, was like uh, the first big part of my lecture. I'm now going to totally switch gears. That was like about a lot of uh, murder and genocide and, and race. And I wanted to do a little bit, something a little more lighthearted and, and sort of try to see where these issues and themes come up in a case that's much less obvious, much less disturbing, much less explicit, um, which is um, uh, looking at processes of inclusion and exclusion in a non-racialized context, that is to say, East and West Germany. So East and West Germany, of course, did not construct themselves as racial, racially distinct populations. Um, just, just, I mean, I'm a German story. I'm sure all of you guys know all this stuff anyway, but in case anybody doesn't, well, just to give you a, a, a visual, um, these are maps. So this is uh, essentially Nazi Germany, the peak of its power. So, you know, the red is, is essentially German nation, quote unquote, in 
very good idea. Okay, um, so it's a remarkable experiment, right? Um, anthropological experiment, taking one population, dividing it in two, giving them different economies, societies, cultures, um, but the same past, the same language, et cetera, and see what happens. So very interesting thing to study for historians and everyone else. Um, so what happened in East and West Germany is that two populations developed that were not based on race, but on economic and social structures, right? And how did that process work? So in order to kind of think about how that works in the German case, I'm going to focus on a particularly iconic food of the modern world of the 20th century that is bananas. And I'm actually going to start my story not at the moment of division, which is 1949, but at the end of division, which is at, at the fall of the wall in 1989, and then ultimately um, reunification uh, less than a year later. In the days and weeks that followed the fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9th, 1989, throngs of East Germans rushed over the newly permeable border. Giddy men, women, and children filled the towns and cities that lay west of the Berlin Wall. West Berlin in particular was overwhelmed. Roads were impassable, shops sold out. I think we all lived through this, and we might even remember from newspapers, right? Um, the Federal Republic, so this is a West German, the West, a West German uh, satiric magazine, Titanic, dedicated its November issue to this historic moment. <coughs> with a cover image depicting a smiling Zonengabi or Gabi from the Eastern Zone, from the Soviet Zone, which is kind of a disparaging name for East Germany. So this is supposed to be a, a prototypical East German woman. Dressed in an ill-fitting jean jacket, a decade out of fashion, her curly red hair shorn in an unfashionably boyish cut, Gabi's goofy grin shines out of her freckled face. In her left hand, she clutches an enormous cucumber, its green skin carefully peeled, pulled down to resemble a half-peeled banana. The headline is Gabby's proud explanation, my first banana. The image was a tremendous success. I'm sure you guys can see, but so this is a cucumber, and she thinks it's a banana. That's the joke, right? Okay. So more, this is, a, and the image is a huge, huge hit. Anybody who's spent time in Germany will see this at some point, somewhere, right? Still today. More than anything, of course, it is Gabby's peeled cucumber that made her such a star and such a pop icon. Importantly, she's actually a West German woman, um, but that's a whole different story. Uh, one of the few fresh vegetables that was consistently available in the GDR, the cucumber was a staple of diet in both German states, where the plant flourished in the Central European climate. The heart of the joke, of course, is Gabby's almost virginal lack of knowledge of the exotic and imported banana. She looks like she's about to devour this whole cucumber without even realizing that it's the same watery fruit that she's been consuming in salads and sandwiches her entire life. Yet ironically, it was for this very cucumber that Gabby was assumed to have torn down the wall in the first place to finally gain access to those long-desired bananas. Bananas had long been an obsession for West Germans, who early on had recognized them as an important symbol of post-war prosperity and luxury consumption. In 1954, Konrad Adenauer had, despite intense protests by France and other um, European countries, Western European countries, successfully negotiated West Germany's right to import bananas tax-free. And this is a, a, a remarkable, this was actually a huge, huge-ish deal, as you can imagine, making them one of West Germany's cheapest fruits. So the only other country in the world to have access to such cheap bananas is what country? The United States. And who provides those bananas? Yeah. Chiquita, but the banana republics, right? So essentially what happened is that West Germany was able, through the West Germany, to gain direct access to the banana republics and provide its population with bananas at an unbelievably cheap rate. Um, indeed, Adenauer was so committed to this policy that he actually threatened to boycott the European community, the EC, if he was not given this right to import tax-free bananas. So he actually staked um, his country's sort of international uh, relationships on this issue. Indeed, 
um, as early as 1953, and remember the war ended in 1945, uh, 1949, West Germany is in complete shambles. I mean, th this is pretty fast. 1953, there are already whole cookbooks dedicated to bananas. Um, uh, West German cookbooks have chapters titled things like, what do I do with all these bananas? Um, and this is the first, uh, this is a 1961 cookbook that is actually titled, this is the first one I could find that's actually exclusively banana recipes. Um, and you can sort of, it's called Banana Schlemmerei, and I mean, it's hard to translate, it doesn't really matter. Um, more so than any other European country, in West Germany, bananas were integrated into daily eating habits. Housewives were taught to bake, broil, fry, and mash them, serving them with sweet desserts, savory roasts, drinks, and as confections. By 1989, West Germany's yearly banana consumption had risen to 800,000 tons, making it Europe's biggest banana importer and putting it second only to the United States in per capita consumption of bananas. In contrast, East Germany predictably had very little access to cheap bananas. The GDR's primary source of tropical fruits, which is Cuba, um, was not a banana exporter, and supplies from Africa and Asia were unreliable and often quite expensive. And indeed, the only example I could find of meaningful banana imports were from Vietnam, which gave uh, the GDR a, a wonderful shipment of bananas, but they ended up being dried bananas, and that was a huge kind of crisis for the East German government, who people, of course, didn't want dried bananas, they wanted fresh bananas. Even during the peak of the GDR's consumer economy, uh, that's West, East Germany, sorry, in the peak of East Germany's consumer economy, fresh bananas were usually available only during winter holidays and in limited quantities. However, certainly almost every East German occasionally ate bananas, and certainly none of them was unfamiliar with them. That is to say, the joke is obviously not true. There is no East German that did not know what a banana was. So my point, of course, here is that, in fact, statistically, East Germans did not eat shockingly few bananas. West Germans ate shockingly a lot of bananas, right? Yet, in the context of reunification, West Germans came to conceptualize East Germans, above all, in relationship to bananas. And again, anybody, I moved to Germany, uh, you know, 10 years after reunification, so it's still really prevalent today. Anybody who was in Germany at this time will remember, I mean, bananas were just everywhere. And these kind of, these were images that were reproduced in magazines and photos, and you'd always want to show East Germans in relationship to bananas. It was just kind of a, a trope, a visual trope. Um, so, banana, they're buying out, you know, this is an image, oh, sorry. This. This one is like the first thing. So East Germans were given like 100 bucks from the West German government when they came across the border. It's kind of like a Begrüßungsgeld. It was called like Welcome to West Germany. And of course, the first thing they were assumed to buy was always bananas. Um, whenever stores opened in East Germany, they'd always have an extra large supply of bananas. Um, you know, and this is a picture of people lighting up in West Berlin to buy bananas. It just goes on and on, right? In Berlin, groups of West German retirees gathered at the Brandenburg Gate immediately following the fall of the wall to greet East German newcomers with free bananas. They would hand out a banana to each one. Um, sometimes there are pictures of people throwing uh, bananas into herds of East Germans, pictures of frantic grocers trying to protect their bananas from long-deprived Easterners, projected a mixture of humor but also very real fear on the part of West Germans that all of their uh, bananas would be eaten. Right. So cartoons, jokes, and anecdotes depicted the fall of the wall as a sort of modified food riot wherein ravenous East Germans stormed the West in their overwhelming desire for luxury foodstuffs, right? And so that Titanic cover was just kind of the first of what's really a, 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 a massive wave of these images. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead. Um, so East Germans' craving for bananas was not, of course, a conventional hunger in the way that I talked about in the first half of my paper, um, one that's represented by inadequate caloric consumption. Indeed, East Germany had been confronting an, ep an obesity epidemic almost identical to that of West Germany since the 1970s. And to say the East Germans were not hungry in any conventional sense of the word. But instead, they were imagined as having a, a sort of postmodern hunger for the delicacies of the global marketplace. So in fact, they have plenty of food, but they're hungry for something else, right? They have 
cucumbers, but what they really want are bananas. Um, and an interesting side note, all the concern that West Germans had about bananas was not unplaced because with reunification, uh, the EU decided that the Germany's, West Germany's special treatment in terms of banana taxes was no longer sustainable now that it was unified and they canceled its import-free ta uh, tax on bananas. So that banana price tripled within a couple of weeks and this was a massive issue in Germany as well um, after reunification. Um, so Germany's banana prices were now the same as the rest of Western Europe. Bananas were no longer cheaper than homegrown produce. So, and this is the US too, bananas are cheaper than apples often. Um, cheap enough to be given away to poor neighbors and friends as a sign of collective prosperity. Um, so I just kind of wanted to run through a couple of images. Um, again, this is uh, depicting so this is the day Germany actually unified, right, October 3rd, 1990, as the day of bananas. Um, again, what's interesting here, of course, is that um, so, yeah, well, I guess this is obvious. Um, um, this is a quick images of banana consumption after reunification. Um, Germany is still high up there. Um, so here's the US. This is 2007. I just got the data. I'm not like, this is not my specialty. Um, so it's a little old, but this is the US. Germany is still leading Europe, but it's uh, you know, not nowhere near as dramatic as it used to be. So interestingly, because of all kinds of reasons, reunification has actually lowered uh, banana consumption in Germany per capita rather than increasing it. Um, but then here, of course, is a cartoon of uh, one of the quote-unquote-successes-of-reunification. Um, and I guess, you know, one of my, what's I think ironic, well, one of the things that I think is most important here is for us to think about how desire for food can and can be pathologized, right? So in this case, uh, East German's desire for bananas is pathologized, um, whereas West German banana consumption is normalized, right? We have a very healthy and normal relationship to bananas. It's East Germans who are pathological. Um, and of course, it all depends on what you want to look at. But if you look at it from the perspective of France, um, West Germans are psychotic about their banana consumption. And really, East Germans are right more on par with standard Central European banana consumption. So again, it's all about how you want to frame things, right? Um, who, what desire is normal, what desire is pathological. Um, and I just wanted to end with a quick, this is a flag, I mean, you know, there's just a point, this is still going on, this idea of a particular German relationship to bananas. This is a, a joke that doesn't really translate in English because it's a, an acronym, but, you know, it's called BR, the West Germany is, B, or, sorry, Germany is the BRD, um, Bundesrepublik Deutschland, and it's, this is a flag that says the Bananenrepublik Deutschland, so it's, um, and I think this is an interesting image because you can see this idea of being a banana republic um, being flipped on its head, right? They're a banana republic because they consume bananas rather than produce bananas. So again, you have these different dualisms being flipped around. Again, thinking about where hunger fits um, in these uh, situations. So obviously, East Germany's getting a lot of bananas, West Germany's getting a lot of bananas. Presumably, the banana republics don't have so many bananas, right? Because they're shipping them all over to this banana republic. So it's all, all intertwined. That's always my message. So, over the course of the 20th century, the questions of what, how, and why Germans ate were decisive for personal well-being and happiness, for national, economic, and social development, for individual and community health, and for the emergence of specific patterns of food production and consumption. Food thus shaped the German citizenry's respective imaginings of the self and the other, as well as their everyday activities, social networks, and political ambitions. The history of modern Germany makes abundantly clear that even as states change their forms in profound and often profoundly violent ways, and of course 20th century Germany um, is 
you know, famous for that, they continue to rely on the industrial food system for methods of managing populations, shaping people's bodies, and structuring their daily lives, and how, and most of all, I think, how they imagine themselves and others. So that is something I think that is not German-specific at all, but is very true today as well. Thank you very much for your attention. That's a great question. I mean, so why bananas? Um, bananas are, well, the same reason that, so really it's because of the U.S., I would say, because the banana is absolutely central to U.S. foreign policy and economic growth at this point. So West Germany is the kind of, is, has an incredibly intimate relationship with the U.S. after the war. So the U.S. has taken West Germany under its wing as sort of the core nation to develop in, in the new Cold War. And so the U.S. Is, they, they offers West Germany uh, economic advantage, and the U.S. has an unbelievable supply of incredibly cheap bananas, and that's been part of the good neighbor policy um, in the U.S. for a long time, that the banana would be a central tenet of U.S.-South American relationships. So I think it has to do with that kind of geopolitical alliance. Um, but of course, also, it had to be something exotic. It couldn't be something that was easy to get, right? Um, yeah, exactly. It had to be an import, essentially. I think that was key to this identity formation of being a modern, prosperous country. What, but, you, yeah. but you find that, you know, like in India, where you have to eat food where you were grown, macrobiotic eating, mm -hmm. you have to eat food where mm -hmm. you oh, live. Yeah. And so I was just wondering, do you know, did you find, like, what influence, what it was, that it's a red that got him on that track? Well, I guess I think what's particular, so I think eating local in some way is certainly not a Nazi innovation, right? But I think what's important, I don't think blood and soil is something that is so, that's ubiquitous in human nature, because blood and soil is really a racial idea. It's tied to race. And that's, I think, the particularity. And race didn't really exist as a concept until fairly recently. So the Germans were not the only ones to have this racial idea of blood and soil. And in fact, the country that was, had a lot of this rhetoric was England, actually, before Hitler came to power. So this was not unheard of in the 20s and 30s, a racialization of that rhetoric. Um, and, but it wasn't a race idea. It wasn't that. So the idea of blood and soil is that if I eat food, that, is, that if, if a Jew makes the food on this soil and I eat it, I'll be sick. And that's why it's twisted. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, well eating, well why, so that's a, basic, that's a basic nature of how food economies work. So essentially you're always safer if you eat local because it's a guaranteed food supply. So I think that's a rationale for a practical reality. Yeah, that's right. No, I mean, so blood and soil is an idea that had been tossed around since the 19th century, essentially, as a racial idea that came out of anthropology and race sciences. I mean, not, you know, so it, I don't know, I don't, I don't think there's a particular thing that he read. It was more a, yeah, co combination of ideas, yeah. No, thank you so much for mentioning. It's a, that's actually, a, so my cover image, um, this is a, a collage by a very famous German communist artist made in the early 30s called John Hartfield, um, and he was an anti-Nazi. And this, Hurra um, die Allah means, hooray, the butter's all gone. And this is a, hooray, the butter is all gone. Allah means, yeah. And so what, what that's referring to is a speech um, that Goring made, it actually quotes the speech. And to paraphrase it, he essentially says, we, you know, we, don't, need to folk, we're, we're, we don't need to worry about butter and, and, and fat, we need to worry about oil and munitions. Right, and so he's showing he, the collage shows a family that is eating a uh, bicycle and a uh, teapot and a sword and uh, iron chain, and they're saying, "Hooray, we fight! You know, we don't hooray, we don't have any more butter. We get to finally eat metal, metal, right?" Which is a, a joke because obviously you can't really eat metal. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, yeah. Any other questions?
Thank you so much for your time. And by the way, that bread was um, sunflower rye seed bread. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, do you think the bananas in East Germany during the Eastern European time came from Vietnam? No, not the fresh ones. Uh, so the fresh ones in Moscow came from Vietnam. Right, but I saw Vietnamese. So, I didn't see Ecuador. Oh, yeah, I do. Okay, so our next speaker now, Nadia, there's the... Yes. Hutman. 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 Nadia Hutman. I keep misspelling her last name, which is why I have to say it for myself. So, all right, this is Nadia Hutman. We met her a few years ago at the Dunk House, where they've been having German cooking classes. Yes. Off and on. Well, actually on for a number of years. Okay. And I've learned a lot about German food culture from attending some of these classes. Cool. Anyway, um, I will introduce you, and now you take over. Okay, perfect, thanks. So, hi, um, I'm Nadja from Germany, Nadja Hutmann. I'm sorry for my voice, I had a cold recently, so I hope I will make it through the whole talk. I try to. Mm -hmm. Yes. You're saying you are from Germany? Exactly. From Frankfurt, Hessen. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So exactly, that's where I come from. That's where I did my master's thesis for, for Goethe University in Frankfurt. And I recently finished it, my degree, and did, uh, did my field study on German food in Chicago. That's how we now travel from Germany back to Chicago, because that's where I did my field study. Uh, I uh, had a, my major in cultural anthropology and the minors in ethnology and uh, American studies. So uh, the field work I conducted was last year. Um, and as I said for my master's thesis, which uh, is titled Reflections on Culinary Anthropology, Fieldwork on Functions of German Cuisine in Chicago. So I translated it, it's in German, but I translated it for you. Um, I'm aware there might be some anthropologists in the audience, but uh, I try to make it informative for a mixed audience so that it won't be too scientific or, yeah, it's more about the field study and its results. So um, my idea at the beginning was that uh, German cuisine um, serves as a representative for German culture in general, uh, and that uh, there are meanings and functions uh, underneath the surface which go beyond repletion. So it's not only for uh, feeding you, but there's a certain meaning behind it, and also in Chicago. So I'd like to introduce my field study with the multiple methods I conducted. One of these was obviously uh, research and internet research, um, participant observation, which is something really common 
in cultural anthropology. Um, I took field notes and memos to write down my notes and ideas, took photos, um, and had seven interviews uh, with participants, organizers, and one expert, which is Alice. She helped me with that. Um, it was either in English and or German, and I had to do transcripts, uh, which is the longest is around 81 pages, so you have an idea how, how much work is behind doing that. Then I uh, did mind maps, which, is, uh, which helped me to create the um, interview guidelines. And then I also handed out questionnaires in two cooking classes um, with five questions, just to gain some ideas because, yeah, I had no clue what happens culinary when it comes to German food in Chicago. So it was to uh, gain some ideas and informations. Yeah, and I visited uh, various places where German cuisine products and foodstuff were consumed. And I picked two main places. One of these was the Cultural Kitchen and Dunkhaus, which are cooking classes. Uh, the Dunkhaus is a non-profit organization, a German cultural center, uh, which also offers uh, the German cooking classes at Lincoln Square. This would be one example uh, for one of the cooking classes where they did uh, sausage making from scratch. Yeah, and then this would be the yummy result afterwards when they did the sausage. Yeah, and then I have another one where we made apple pancakes, for example, also from scratch. Where's the fourth one? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's not a staple in our house. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's yes. It's actually, guys, very easy. It's sort of like a Yorkshire pudding. Yes. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> it's good. It's glad that you enjoy it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it too. And Rita, if you, if you happen to take one of her classes, she, she does a great job. And her sister, Ingrid, I didn't go to one of your classes, but I assume you do a great job too. <laughs> yeah, the second place I went to was meal sharing. So this is an online platform platform which is originally founded in Chicago by Jesep Safsani. Um, it's a liaison between people who want to eat and be guests, as well as people who love to cook, which are the hosts. Um, and it's mostly in their own private homes, and they will receive a nominal fee for it. So this would be an example for the German kitchen because they also offer German food. And um, the focus with this idea lays on home-cooked, mostly country-specific meals. And an important part is also the socializing, which you can see the table set up and the decoration. So people put a lot of love in it. At least the German lady did much effort. And this would be 
another example just to give you some ideas how it might have been and looked like. Um, yeah, this will lead me to the se seven functions I extracted from my field study um, that I came up with. Yes, the first one would be the identity establisher. Um, I created this one to show um, that individuals have an own self-placement and uh, self-creation. I mean, when it comes to consuming German food, food in general is the first cultural thing and social interaction uh, one is exposed to. Um, this cultural practice is an important factor for building your self-conception. So, um, and my interview partners, they often uh, talked about childhood memories and it's very much interconnected with emotions and it mostly refers to very small units of collective entities like uh, family influence and your self-creation. And uh, there's a lot of there was a lot of recollection of family roots, heritage, stories, and about identification and re-identification and with emotional expression of your uh, German ethnic identity. Um, also, immigrants from Germany, they miss certain products and foods from their home country. So, what would you think people from Germany could miss, maybe? Exactly. <laughs> that leads me to my example. Bread is so, something really important and many German people really identify with good bread. It's an essential staple for German immigrants. It's, it deals a lot uh, about authenticity. And uh, one thing that stresses this uh, fact is that German bread culture was admitted as intangible cultural heritage in 2014, which uh, somewhat makes it also a part of German national culture with that act. Um, this will lead me to my second function, uh, namely the culture builder. Um, so when it comes to German food, it often what often happens as you were the first one to ask, where do you come from, which region? So this is one important thing. There's a culinary division uh, of German food into regions. So people are either potato and or spätzle people. They love their noodles or they love their potatoes. Some love both, but they are very opinionated about it. <laughs> and um, Something like Bavaria uh, is a So when it comes to German food in foreign countries, Bavaria is something that is very often mentioned when it comes to German food. So the Bavarian region, although we have like many different regions, and the people I talk to, they often refer rather to their regional heritage, like northern part or 
Rhineland, then they would say, I'm German and this is my food. So this was something people were rather talking about. And then when it comes to the cultural aspect, authenticity plays a really huge role. So you have to use right ingredients and you need to know where to find them because you want to prepare the food um, as you're used to at home in Germany as an immigrant. And something I found which was really interesting was that many German people find their German food and products rather in Polish stores. That was something I found interesting. Um, and uh, one important aspect is also that German food serves as a rep representative for Germans, maybe also for their national culture, and that there's a certain, um, they have certain expectations how things have to taste, maybe, like every other national cuisine, I would say. And then there's reality and the expectations. And um, German cuisine is, and cooking is also a cultural practice. That was something I also wanted to stress. It's non-static, but people keep it alive and represent it by uh, practicing it. So there was also this notion of tradition and authentic conservation when it comes to a German cuisine. Uh, and something that also was mentioned was a fear of loss, which uh, this means uh, the loss of recipes. People often were talking about, my grandma used to cook this and that, and then they somewhat lost the recipe, which nowadays with internet is way more easy to gain back, but this loss of recipes is also for them a loss of heritage and culture. Yeah, this would be my second function I found out about. And this will lead me to my third function, which is that German food uh, is, a, is slow food and comfort food as opposed to uh, fast food, which represents the American cuisine, rather. Um, so German cuisine in Chicago is seen as a carrier of meaning for German culture. That was what I also mentioned before. And it serves as an opposite pole to American cuisine. It's a comfort food from the old world. It's traditional, home-cooked, and it's grandma food, prepared with love and care. It reflects the warmth of home, togetherness, and family ties. Uh, an important role also plays socializing and communality. It's good for the soul, that's what people told me, slowly cooked and prepared, but has an unhealthy reputation. As I also mentioned, it's often Bavarian. It's meaty and hearty, heavy, and silverware and real china um, are something that is appreciated for appropriate dining. So table culture was also something that was stressed when, when I did my research. And 
this will let me to my fourth point. Ah, yes, that's the example for the for something very slow cooked and prepared, which is the dough for the bread. And then we'll see how the bread is made. So this was from a German lady who really missed her German bread. And this is how she prepares it herself. So that's a good. Um, yeast, I, was it yeast? Yeah. Yeah, I think she used yeast. I can give you the recipe though, I have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I give you the recipe. And yes, this will lead me to the fourth um, function, which is that food, or also German food, could be a conflict resolver. So food in general um, can serve as an ambassador. It's a means of cultural mediation. Eating together face to face makes people interact. Um, but on the other hand, national and ethnic cuisines, as we heard from Alice talk, are also powerful tools, also for politics, and sometimes misused for politics. So, and the em emotional aspect uh, of being connected to one's own cuisine makes uh, vulnerable, especially when it, it's connected with, a, with an eth uh, identity of the national state. So tying ethnic cuisines to national states gives the possibility to load it with some symbolic power, which we also have heard in her talk. For example, uh, vulnerable for something like crowds and sauerkrauts, calling German sauerkrauts. Um, and this will lead me to my fifth function, which, which I called genderficator, because I wanted to stress uh, when it comes to German food, often gender roles play an important factor when it comes to German cuisine. Uh, the idea of grandmas, mothers, and fräuleins uh, serving with love and caring and taking their time and preparing um, was something that often came up. And um, on Although German food is rather seen consumed by men, so it's heavy, hearty, manly. Beer and bratwurst are an inseparable couple, so um, this makes it somewhat um, for male consumption. And also, as we've seen in the sausage class, it was something really that men would prefer and take their hands in and would be happy to, to do. So this was something I wanted to stress when it comes to German food because I think it's some, an important factor too. And the sixth function would be that it's a consumer good as well, also in Chicago. Uh, it's labeled as something from the old world that might be lost. There's a certain longing for tradition and past. and. Um, there 
but it, there are positive emotions uh, towards past and tradition, which I would say is a certain nostalgia that comes uh, with it. So old world values uh, versus the new world, which rather represent the modern America and the, uh, and the, and the old world, which represents Germany and, and Europe and their traditional values. Um, grandma and home cooking is rather rare and therefore it's more appreciated and desirable for people. That's what my uh, notion was about it. And there was also a certain appreciation of stability and quality when, when it comes to German food. So German food is one out of many world cuisines which you can choose from. It's like consuming a, a culture when you consume German food as well. And it's something to create your own lifestyle and it's, uh, it's rather pricey here in Chicago and I, and I assume in the US as well when you go to restaurants or buy certain goods and um, foodstuffs. Uh, maybe that might be a tendency that uh, many German restaurants did close over years. This was something I heard all the time that German restaurants uh, did rather close over the years. And yes, this would be, um, this would be an example for bread which is called, which, where they made some advertisement with this idea of the old world and uh, packaging rather in an old-fashioned way to, to give this notion of traditional, of a traditional foodstuff. Yeah, so this picture, and then there's the last function I would like to represent, which is German cuisine as a traveler. So this might, <laughs> this might wonder you, or you might think, hmm, what does she mean with that? Um, so what I mean with that is German food traveled over the ocean um, and somewhat also changed so recipes and, and the food uh, also change. For example, um, greens and veggies, which, which we also eat in Germany a lot, uh, somewhat got lost on the way. So I, I found that there are adaptations to recipes, integrations and hybrids. Uh, for example, one example would be cheesecake where you traditionally would use uh, quark cheese. And this is something people can really hardly find when they want to reproduce the cheesecake recipe the German way, because there, there's also a, an op opinion about it when it comes to German and American cheesecake, who does the right thing? And yes, <laughs> so cheesecake, I would say, would be a good example for that and how people help themselves out with recreating their German cheesecake. And 
germ. And then there's also the time aspect, that, which I found would also fit good in the traveling symbolism. German food also serves as a time capsule, so it's, and German recipes. It's like a relict of the past, like a time warp. So um, maybe it's even more authentic over here, because uh, immigrants uh, from back in the days brought their recipes, and, um, and they maybe kept them more than than back in Germany, because in Germany recipes also change and and um, get more adaptations to new immigrants, and then there are hybrids of cuisines. So, um, and the 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 meat prone heaviness of the German cuisine. That might also be a, a result of the so-called hunger years we had back in Germany, where people had to eat certain foods, which were veggies like red beets or maybe pumpkins or so, that they really don't want to have the foods they were forced to eat in hunger years. So um, that might have changed the German cuisine and maybe what immigrants linger for when they have like a better life in the US, that might have changed that notion that it's more uh, meat prone. And then, yes? In terms of meat proneness, could it have to do with uh, some of the sacrifices, the hunger that they had in those bad times, or Yes. I know other people, the first thing they do is when they migrate to the United States, is they cut the amount of food meat they eat from their own countries. Yeah. So, yeah. So, exactly. That. Maybe if you can repeat the question. Uh, so, so, you said that. Um, so when people come to the U.S., you said that um, that there's a certain, when they had to hunger before and had to restrict themselves, that there's a certain hunger for meat. That's what you said, right? And yes, I would totally agree that people who were starving before, yes? Also, there is a great tendency, not just in German restaurants in the U.S., but also Italian and Greek and other restaurants to throw in items on the menu that they think will be popular, which have really nothing to do with the cuisine that they represent. Yeah. I know of a German restaurant, which I understand is finally going out of business, mm -hmm. in Lincoln Square, where one of the big attractions is Wiener Schnitzel <coughs> and Upper Store. Both of them are being used, which have nothing to do with Yes, so for sure. So there, there's always like this, um, there are certain expectations, vice versa. So people, German people, assume what uh, Americans would like or love, and also maybe uh, Americans assume what Germans would cook. So there's, it's nothing static. I would say it's like an exchange. That, that was the thing I also want to say about the, 
the traveling thing. It's nothing static, but it's like an exchange between, between these two. And also, my last point would be that um, there are different speeds. So I have this example with sausages. In Germany, one would eat a sausage maybe for lunch in a short time, but here in Chicago, I got the impression that there's always this um, beer and bratwurst thing. They pair together, you sit down, you socialize, you talk, and it takes time. So it's not a rush consuming a sausage, but, but you take your time. It's more of a social event doing that. So, yeah, that would, this would be all I wanted to say about my seven functions I introduced. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Maybe 20, 25 years ago, we talked about the politics, the food, and Deutschland and Germany. Are you familiar with the Brass, either of you? Yeah. Is a writer? Yeah. Yeah, you mean the Blechtrommel, right? Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did that, so. enter, did, did that enter into any of your research at all? So, I have to admit. It's a very popular novelist who politicized. I seem to remember. So, yeah. Memory, but you politicized food very much so. Yeah. Sure. So, I'm not too familiar with Gunther Kras, and I did my field work and did a more uh, cultural approach to it. So, that would be more maybe a literate, literature or political approach to it. So, I'm not an expert on that. So, yeah. So, yeah. Or maybe you have an idea, sorry. <laughs> that would help. It, it yeah. seems to me that German food seems to be thriving in Milwaukee still to this day. Maybe you're coming at that. Those are my two thoughts. Do you want to say Milwaukee? Like, I, I heard about that, so I'm, I don't know a lot about Milwaukee, but I heard that in Milwaukee there's a that German food is, a, is something that represents their regional culture and the Midwestern culture as well, and that there are some good German restaurants. That's what I heard. But other than that, I'm not too familiar, sorry, with that place. I mean, I guess just very briefly in terms of Gunter Grass, I'm also not, I'm not a literary specialist, but I mean, just Generally, Gunter Grass is very interesting. He's a you know, Nobel Prize winning author and very famous. And his sort of career has had this interesting twist in the past like 10 years since reunification. And he's been very, in he outed himself as being a former member of the Hitler Youth. And it's been very interesting discussions going on in Germany about the past and its relationship to contemporary German identity. And one thing that Gunter Grass, I find very interesting about him, he wrote a famous piece about the, the onion. And he, he was talking about how German history is like an onion and you just keep peeling it. Um, I don't know if you know this essay. Anyways, uh, but, but, and so I think he's very interested in look in metaphors of German food um, as a way to revive and restore a kind of a proud German national identity that is not contaminated by uh, the Third Reich. 
And I think that's been a big trend um, in a literary turn, especially since reunification. And the idea has been now that we can sort, you know, during division, interestingly, uh, there was not a really effective way to make German national cuisine, right, a national issue. That's why the turn was to regional, because there was not a German nation state. And Germany had lost the war, and Germany has been Nazis. It was very hard to have a strong national cuisine, strategically. But since reunification, there's been a real interest in recreating a kind of a national uh, identity. And I think Gunter Grass has been a big figure who has been interested in food throughout, but he's been much more interested in kind of saying food can exist outside of a political context and be uh, just kind of a cultural bearer. Um, and I would agree with you. I think there's always multiple meanings to food. I think it's not, that's not totally true, but I think he's a big advocate of that. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Do you yeah. Until today, I mean, many foods uh, are shared in different European countries, something like goulash or the d different countries have the same food, so. No, I think, it's, there's, it's, I think it's very interesting. Germany is very invested in this regional identity, but every single nation state, there's no single nation state that ever existed more than 150 years. I mean, every nation is invented in the 19th century, pretty much. I mean, and France is pretty regional. I mean, you know, so I think it's very, and I think the reason that Germany is so in, in, invested in its regional identity, it's true, but it's not uniquely German. I think that became so important after the Cold War when there was not a clear nation. I mean, so I think it's actually a, it's, it's, it's true, but it's not the answer, right? And being German, at least after World War II, was not something people were proud about. So it would be rather something to refer to to your region than, than showing off a certain national uh, proud or identity. So, so I think this is also an important part when it comes to German culture and German self-understanding that you wouldn't want to say, I'm German and I'm proud of it. So at least maybe it, it comes uh, the last couple of years, but before it was something really embarrassing, maybe. Yeah, uh, I don't know who was first. people who were cooking German recipes just just told me they go to German, uh, to Polish grocery stores, exa uh, for example, to buy quark cheese for their cheesecake or or maybe pickles and, and sausages which are done pretty similar in the European way. So this is how, how immigrants told me about their uh, their way to get their food for an, the important factor also is the price for an affordable price because the Polish community in Chicago seems to be a lot more um, 
involved in their cultural, like in their own delis and uh, keeping their own supermarkets and their food. So, and they are quite similar. They are more uh, um, German maybe or European than the than the. Uh, than the, when you something that you'll find in American stores. So that's what people said. I don't know who was first, so, okay. I mean, like the obvious answer is also that many of the foods that Germans define as being German are exactly the same as the Polish version. I mean, that's like the obvious answer. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that's what we were talking about when we say uh, different countries also share foods and food staples in Europe. It's not that strictly separated. Yeah. I recently went to a class on Russian foods, and it was the same thing that um, you can find a lot of the items in the Polish delis because they're more prevalent. And they said and a lot of food in Ukraine and Poland is very, very similar. The names are very similar. There's slight variations. Sometimes when we order shit, the Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> so the spatial and sauerkraut that you had at the very beginning is my family's favorite meal. It was a meal that we had with my grandmother. Okay, it was a meal that we had with my grandmother who when she died, nobody really knew exactly how to make it. And granted, it's spatula, it's onions, it's bacon, it's sausage. But she was one of those people, when you arrived, everything was made, she pulled it out of the oven, and here it is, dinner. And so when she died, nobody had exactly followed the trail. And it took my dad and I a couple of years to kind of figure out what was the right style. Um, when it came to, my dad went to, to Europe for the first time in the late 1950s, expecting to eat food like he had at home. And it was a huge shock. The food wasn't wherever he began in Europe or in Germany, I'm not quite sure where, but he couldn't find the bread that his mother always served, which is the sourdough rye. Um, and there was a polarization in the household, as you pointed out, between potatoes and spatula or dumplings or whatever. My grandfather was from the north, he was a potato guy. My grandmother was from the south, spatula. So if he didn't come home for dinner, guess what was on the table? When he was not, when he was present, there was no spatula, there was potatoes. And so a lot of that division I've seen in my own family. And one of the things, we, I hate to say it, but in our family, we kind of have a love-hate relationship with German food. We love what we got from my grandmother. We love that whole context. And by the way, when it came to cheesecake, my dad said it was really great when she discovered the cream cheese recipe over the farmer's cheese recipe. He did not like 
the original version. And he made a comment. I wanted him to be here today, but he had to take care of something. But he made a comment the other day that he had never said to me before. He says, German food in Chicago was better in the 1940s than it is now. And uh, so a lot of what you said, I completely recognize. So I have faith that you conveyed it correctly. <laughs> anyway, um, so when there's spage, so there's some a little bit left over the spatial and sauerkraut. Alice, can you tell them about the Kulturhund? Oh, Kalterhund. Oh, yeah. Come on over here. Yeah. Oh, come on over. Kalterhund. Hast du gegessen das Kind, oder? Yeah. Yeah. Typical. Yeah, genau. So, Kalterhund is like, Kalterhund is like a very simple, it's called the icebox cake. It's just layers of cookie and, and melted chocolate layered together. Um, and it's sort of a, actually, I think they have versions in the U.S. It's a very generic post-war. As soon as you get freezers, you have these kinds of cakes. But what's interesting in, um, in German discourse is that Kaltehund has been very much associated after reunification with German, uh, East German traditions because it's very simple and very easy and very fast and not very sophisticated. And so it was seen as being a typically East German dessert, um, whereas West German baking was associated with much more elaborate, complicated, hot baking, often imported ingredients. But what's interesting about that is that's, of course, already a fiction because, as we heard, this Frankfurt, lovely woman from Frankfurt ate Kaltehund. So this is, again, a kind of an interesting, iconic food that is often seen as typically East German children's cake, but in fact was a pan-German and indeed pan-transnational. And it's cold. made with? It is, a, well, it, traditionally, coconut. yes, traditionally it's made with coconut oil. It's a cheap, it's actually a post-war recipe that you don't have real chocolate. You don't have good melting chocolate. So you have usually cocoa and, uh, and coconut oil that you melt to kind of make a thick, thin glaze um, and that you layer with sort of cheap cookies. It's actually tastier than it sounds, as we know. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But I, I did this last night around midnight, and one of the things, I have the recipe sitting over there, I believe, and one of the things is, well, I kind of race things along, so I didn't wait for it to thicken a little bit. I just started, because I wanted to go to bed, I have to say. So then I, and then it says that if you use it when it's too, too melty, then the cookies were floating, which was sort of happening. So last night before I went to bed, I kind of weighted them down. So there's a little, it's thin chocolate in between when there should have been a little more like more chocolate. Myth of convenience food. Never quite as convenient. As and by the way, the melting point of coconut oil is 76 degrees because my container was liquefied when I began. And it was still liquid. Yeah, and it was so hot. And I'm with sweating bullets making the special. It was like, ah, oh, why do you, you, oh, you're welcome. But it was like, why do I say yes to these things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. So anyway, you're welcome to have a little more spatula, and you got to try to Kulterhund. And thank you, ladies. Thank you. you made it terrific. <laughs>